Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Brainwaves. Hear the world differently. Bringing community mental health to you, raising awareness and challenging stigma. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio, Wednesdays at 5pm. Melbourne's Drive Time Radio Program, featuring community organisations, powerful stories and information. Find us at brainwaves.org.au. Proudly sponsored by Wellways Australia. Welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR. You're listening in on 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. Today from the Brainwaves team, we have myself, Lauren and Marnie, and we're going to be talking to Dr. Neil Bailey, who is a neuroscientist about mindfulness. Thank you so much for coming, first and foremost, um, and taking the time out to come and talk to us. Um, so do you want to just introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. So I'm Neil Bailey. I'm a researcher at the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre. Uh, and my main field of research is the brain changes that take place as a result of a lot of uh, mindfulness meditation. Uh, could you give our listeners a brief introduction to mindfulness? Yeah, sure. So um, definitions of, of mindfulness, I guess, vary depending on who you're speaking to. Um, but the one I prefer and the one that seems to have shown the most um, support with the research, I guess, is um, it's an intention to um, pay attention to the experience of the present moment um, in a non-judgmental and accepting manner. Um, so what that, that means, I guess, is that um, you see a lot of people sitting, uh, often with their legs crossed but not necessarily, uh, with their eyes closed um, and just directing their attention to how their, their body feels or how their, their breath is. Yeah, so what role can mindfulness play in the treatment of common mental illnesses such as anxiety and depression? Um, so mindfulness uh, has been shown across quite, quite a range of studies to improve um, mental health in general. Um, in particular, it's good for depression and chronic pain, uh, the research has shown, uh, but also now anxiety. Um, and people who have gone through a mindfulness trial across a, a bunch of different studies um, seem to show um, a reduced... Um, probability of relapsing from depression after that. Uh, they also show an improved um, mental health in comparison to the, um, the average population from which they come. So if they're depressed, for example, um, they're, they show um, mental health uh, that sits at about um, the 70th uh, percentile of the average person from the um, Sorry, the average person who's practiced mindfulness meditation um, shows um, mental health that's better than 70% of the population from which they come. Hmm. So, yeah. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, so your work has looked at the changes that occur in the brain during mindfulness. Before we discuss this, uh, can you talk about neuroplasticity and the way you can observe changes in the brain? Yeah, sure. So um, there are a, a couple of different ways you observe the changes in the brain. Um, one of them is, um, and, and probably the most common, is with MRI. 
Um, MRI kind of works like a radar, um, but with a magnetic field instead of a sound field. So what it does is it, it sends out a really strong magnetic field and this um, shifts the, the protons in the hydrogen molecules um, in the water molecules that are in our brain. Um, and then the MRI has these antenna um, on either side of a person's head, uh, and those antenna uh, read the, the bounce back signal from that. So I guess it's like with a radar, you're, you're pinging out sound and listening to the echo back. Um, and that, that process helps us uh, image the structure of the brain because different um, brain regions um, have different densities and so they, they bounce back at different times which means um, that we can infer from that uh, how dense the structure is, what the structure might be made of for example if it's bone or it's brain um, and we've been able to use that to show that uh, volumes of different brain regions are increased in um, people who meditate, and also that um, blood flow changes take place. So certain regions are more active and certain regions are, are less active um, in people who have meditated a lot. Um, the research that I do is um, actually using EEG rather than MRI. Um, EEG uh, is a measure of the electrical activity that comes from the brain um, rather than the, the structure or the blood flow. And so what we're doing with that is we're measuring the instant changes um, that take place during sort of cognitive processing or that sort of thing. And they're, they're a lot quicker than um, the structural or the um, blood flow changes. Um, in terms of neuroplasticity, uh, until around the 80s, it was generally assumed that our brains were just stable, um, static, and, and what you had was just what you had. Um, this meant, for example, that um, it was assumed after a stroke any loss in function just didn't really improve. Um, and looking back in, in hindsight, I guess, it seems a bit um, obvious that given our brain sort of um, controls our um, every, every skill we learn, every habit we have, every thought we have, um, it, it does seem obvious that the brain is going to change as we learn new skills. Um, and so, for example, when you learn to ride a bike, um, your, your brain will change and um, have stronger connections in certain region as a result of that process. Uh, now, what mindfulness meditation does is um, it trains the process of directing your attention. Um, so you're really upregulating those brain regions um, in terms of activity and then increasing the structure in that, in that brain, brain region. Yeah, so that's the changes that you can observe in the brain when somebody engages in mindfulness then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we, um, we see changes in the, the prefrontal cortex, which um, regulates attention, um, and also a dampening of the amygdala, um, which is related to stress response and fear. Interesting, yeah. Hmm. Um, can I ask a question just, you know, off the sure. page, if sure. you like? <laughs> um, I just want to know, say if I start... For example, I'm learning radio stuff now. Mm. Is that going to erase stuff that I've learned in other areas, like my musical ability that I used to practice a lot? That's is it? So, um, does it like replace that knowledge? Yeah. Do you mean? Yeah. Or no? Um, to be honest, I don't. I don't think we have a real good answer on that question. I think what um, what happens though is that with disuse, I guess. 
Um, so if you don't practice that skill, it gets weaker and weaker. Uh, yeah. um, and that's particularly the case for skills that aren't so habitual or, or like well-learned. Um, over time, if you don't practice them repeatedly, they sort of fade away, I guess. So the same can be said for mindfulness as well. So um, in your experience, what does it feel like practicing it? Um, so th this is um, an interesting question, I guess. A lot of people have the perception that mindfulness is sort of a, a mystical experience or, or something spiritual, but um, it, it really is just a mind mental training technique. And so the experience, if I were to um, convey the, I guess, um, uh, most important um, sort of feeling that I get from from meditating is actually just sitting with my eyes closed. That that's what it feels like in the moment. Um, I guess across the course of of time, when you meditate more and more, though, um, because you're practicing for so long at directing your attention to your body, um, you get better at. Um, for example, not being distracted or, or maintaining your attentional focus um, on the current uh, experience. You also um, notice um, that you, you get better at detecting sensations from your body. Um, so more and more subtle sensations, I guess. And that because you're also part of it is training acceptance, you're um, faster and faster at saying, even this is, if this is an unpleasant experience, um, it, it's just a temporary experience and it's okay. Um, and it's not something to get super worried about. Um, yeah. Yeah, so can mindfulness also improve the well-being of people who don't suffer from a mental illness? Yeah, definitely. Um, as I mentioned before with the people with depression, um, the same statistics apply. So the, the average person who practices um, mindfulness shows better health than about better mental health sorry than about um, 70 percent of the the rest of the non-mindful population um, and and that's for healthy people and depressed people and people with anxiety so yeah definite improvements ev even if you're not suffering from a, a mental illness at all um, so when did you first become interested in mindfulness and um, how helpful do you find it um, so my, my personal interest, I guess, was actually just driven by the, the research. Um, maybe six or seven years ago, I was doing my PhD looking at uh, depression after a brain injury. And uh, through that process, I, re I realized most of the, the treatments we have for depression and the ways for addressing it are all band-aids at the end of the process. So... Um, once somebody is already depressed, we try and treat them. Uh, and, and that struck me as um, a bit backwards. And if there were a way to prevent um, mental illness from developing, that would probably be more effective. Uh, sure. Yeah. yeah. So I started um, noticing the, the research into mindfulness um, and, and was drawn to it mainly because of the, the brain changes at that time um, that people were showing. Uh, after that... It took me maybe three or four years to, to get really, really interested in it and start practicing. And maybe two years ago, um, I went on a, a silent retreat for 10 days where um, everybody was silent for the whole 10 days. Um, and across the 10 days, we meditated for 
about a hundred hours um, in, in silence with our eyes closed. Not not all in one go, but uh, yeah. broken up across the ten days. So. Yeah. I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, yeah, that's very intense. It begs the question, how much mindfulness is enough mindfulness? Or this too is, much? Uh, yeah, too much is... Uh, <laughs> I don't know if there is too much. Um, I'm yet to find out that. Yeah. But um, <laughs> there's, there's not actually a good amount of research either on um, how much is enough. Uh, uh, a lot of the studies that, that look for just relationships um, between practice and improvements in mental health or, or whatever else you're measuring... Um, they don't find super, super strong relationships as of yet. And nobody's um, compared two groups, for example, looking at uh, one group that does 10 minutes a day and one group that does half an hour a day. Mm. So we, we don't know is the, the short answer, I guess. The long answer, though, is um, I suspect there's a minimum amount. Um, and I would say it might be around 10 minutes a day, um, but below which um, you're maybe not... Uh, getting enough density of, of practice, I guess, to actually um, f- make stable and long-lasting changes to those neural circuits. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, do you believe that mindfulness should be part of every school's curriculum? What benefits could mindfulness have in the classroom environment? Um, this is a, a really good time to ask me that question, actually. I've just been writing a uh, review paper on this. Um, I definitely think it would be really, really good in the school curriculum. Um, at the moment, rates of depression are um, seemingly the highest they've ever been. Um, and just in regards to the, the prevention that we spoke about earlier, rather than treatment once it's already um, somebody already has a mental illness, I think it's a really good idea. Uh, kids in a classroom are, to some extent, a, a captive audience. And so we can uh, teach it to them um, when they will be really receptive to it because we can make the time in the day for it Uh, at a time where their brains are really um, sensitive to new information and and really soak it up quickly Um, and at a time just before they're most vulnerable for developing a mental illness. Um, So most mental illnesses seem to start developing around um, 15 to 25 years of age. So if we can get in there at the right time, yeah. um, it would be yeah really helpful. be interesting to see what happens if it becomes mandatory and then to look at the research in 10 years to see if it's working, you know. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, and there is actually a lot of research going on in that field. Um, at I think Oxford in England, they're doing a trial at the moment of about six thousand um, students. Uh, so the results of that will come out in maybe five years, and we'll we'll have a pretty good answer from that as to um, you know how large the effects are. Yeah. yeah. Do you think policymakers are aware of these effects, like and how positive it could be? To some extent, I think so. Um, I mean, you just have to look in the media to see, you know, mindfulness is sort of everywhere at the moment. There are a lot of uh, journalists writing articles about it. Um, around 40% of schools in England, and I suspect the same in Australia, already have um, mindfulness um, as, as part of their well-being program. Um, so it's, it's definitely on the increase. Um, I think the issue at the moment, though, is that it tends to be the... Um, higher uh, decile schools, so the the ones in the um, 
upper socioeconomic regions that have the programs. Mm. And that means that um, the kids in the, the more vulnerable, lower socioeconomic categories um, who probably need it more, to be honest, aren't getting it. Um, so there's an equity issue there as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so do you think there is enough money being invested in mindfulness um, as a whole and as a researcher in the field, how would you describe the funding situation? Uh, I guess the first thing I always think um, when I get asked that question is that uh, my research has, has never been significantly funded. Um, so to me, that says there, there definitely isn't enough funding. Um, I think that applies across the board, actually, in health research, though. Um, there are definitely more researchers out there with great ideas than there is funding to, to provide. Um, bigger picture, um, I, I wonder if this is a question of just wealth distribution in general. Um, I mean, I guess if you were going to fund things like mindfulness research more, um, the, the money would have to come from somewhere. So the, the question is, I guess, um, what are the priorities? Um, mm. In my opinion, the priorities should definitely be mental health and um, the, the people who are vulnerable and, and could be treated. Um, and, and so, yeah, I definitely think there should be more funding directed in, into research. Um, and, and if we improve mental health of, of the people who are more vulnerable, um, they tend to do better in society, um, get jobs and, and pay more taxes. So even if you're just looking at the um, sort of economic decision, um, I, I think even then it's a, it's a smart move. Yeah. Yeah. So in the past, mindfulness has sort of been known as an alternative practice and it's not really been well understood. Do you think that the broader community awareness is now increasing? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think part of that is uh, we're, we've changed our perception of it um, a, as a scientific community. Mm. Um, we, uh, I guess um, science used to look at it as a spiritual practice. Um, and, and now as a practice um, in all the research, it's been completely stripped of anything spiritual um, which um, is actually the same as it used to be mm. in terms of it's, it's just always been a mental training technique. Um, but the way we've looked at it, I guess, and, and communicated about it is a lot more um, scientific nowadays, which I think helps a lot um, yeah. and, and is definitely important. So. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, do you think that mindfulness mm. can work for everybody? Or are there some people who simply find it too difficult or impossible? Um, I think there probably are people who, um, e even if they are interested in practicing mindfulness, will, will never actually pursue it. Um, I suspect a, a lot of people do find it really, really hard, and, and I found it really, really hard to start with. Um, I think there's probably a, a few sort of prerequisite skills um, before somebody were to start practicing. Um, one would be actually just the ability to control their, their time well enough to um, make space in the day to practice. And I, I think that's what a, a lot of people struggle with nowadays. Um, the second would be to, to actually see the benefits. Um, so if uh, you think that it won't benefit you um, or you think that um, it just doesn't work in general, um, then 
probably mindfulness um, is, isn't something that you're going to pursue. Um, the third, I think, block that a lot of people come up with is, is determination. So mindfulness is actually quite hard. When you, when you sit down and just close your eyes and try to just focus your attention, um, stuff comes up, you get, you get bored, um, you think about the other things that you could be doing, um, you might dwell on something that you've done in the past or worry about something that's going to happen in the future. And these are all um, okay and part of the process, um, but they are something, I guess, that needs to be um, pushed through if you're going to train your attention. Um, and I guess a lot of people, yeah, try to do that and, and find it really hard and then just decide it's, it's not for them. Um, and so they, they won't pursue it and won't get the benefits, I guess. Um, but no, it is, it is a very tough thing sometimes. So that's totally understandable as well. Yeah. So following on from that, what advice would you give to somebody who's trying to attempt mindfulness, but it's not really getting into it the way that they, they could be? Um, I think something that uh, a, lo- a lot of people um, think is that it's their determination that's, that's lacking. Mm. Um, but I, I actually found it was more um, just my ability to form a habit. Um, so it's really hard to be determined to do something, um, when you don't have any system around it, I guess. But if you, um, structure your day, so there's, there's a point in your day where you just say, this is the time where I do mindfulness and I've, I've made space for it here. Mm. Um, then it actually gets a bit more like brushing your teeth. It's just a part of your, your routine. Yeah. Um, a lot of people just say it, it's part of my morning routine of getting ready and after I have a shower and brush my teeth, I practice 10 minutes of mindfulness and then um, move on with the rest of my day. Yeah. Um, if you're looking to make it as easy as possible, I think forming habits like that is a really good uh, good way to go about it. Yeah, hmm. I think that's a good, good solution. Hmm. Yeah. Um, what does the future hold for mindfulness research? Are there any unresolved questions you're excited to see answered or areas you'd like to explore in the future? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, so many, actually. Um, for me, really digging down into the, the deeper mechanisms, I guess, of how it works um, is really important. So we'll be running a trial soon, hopefully, um, looking at... Uh, neurotransmitter balances in the prefrontal cortex which controls our attention and seeing um, if you know because mindfulness does seem to have an effect on our attention whether it's actually um, at a a deeper level changing the the balances that we have of these neurotransmitters and and maybe eventually that's what um, allows us to to focus our attention more and improve our mental health Something um, that I think would be really, really important for the field in general is to know, um, we touched on this before actually, like how, uh, how long is enough in terms of to get the benefits, but also um, a finer tuning, tuned understanding of not just how much is enough, but if you do this much, um, how much improvement you're likely to get. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, does is ten minutes a day enough to help prevent depression? Um, is then half an hour a day enough to um, make you feel pr- pretty well most of the time? And you know, is is two hours a day 
too much or is it just um, a, a really good way to be um, mentally well all of the time? Yeah. I think that's <laughs> a really interesting thing that still needs to be touched on. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. I mean, it would be super um, helpful for everybody to know that, I guess, so that they can know, you know, like what, what do they need um, and what can they get out of it? Yeah, mm. great. Um, so I think that's all the questions. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your knowledge with our listeners. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Perfect. <laughs> so thank you so much to Neil for coming on the show today and sharing your knowledge with our listeners. You can find more of our shows at our website, brainwaves.org.au, or on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au slash brainwaves, or on iTunes. Feel free to send us feedback or suggestions for shows via email at brainwaves at worldwaves.org. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Wednesday at 5pm for another episode of Brainwaves on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.